This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, I should say host, but also realtors with Oakland Realty in downtown Vancouver. And today I am so excited. We've got Larry Beasley on the program. Larry Beasley, not only is he uh, a past guest. He's also a fan favorite. He's also a fan favorite. He's also known internationally as uh, for being an urban planner, but also being an urban planner that shaped basically Vancouver and all the best characteristics of the city. Well, and he wrote a book about it. He's the author of Vancouverism. And which we have, we've given away 100 copies on this program over the years. Yeah, if you can that's imagine. Right. But the other thing about Larry is that he was the co-director of planning for the city of Vancouver for a very long time. He's a professor. He runs his own consulting, consulting company. company. And he's worked, he's in Dubai. He's been all over the place. But I mean, we should let Larry talk. Uh, Let Larry uh, introduce Larry. This, yeah. is, uh, this is for sure. But it's a great conversation. Yeah. I can't wait. And least of all, a building named after him in downtown Vancouver. The Beasley. That's the Beasley. right. Yeah. The Beasley. And one thing that I, I just want to say about Larry is when I think to this conversation, it's somebody that is like on the cusp of a lot of changing a lot of the changes when it comes to urban planning, but also is a well of experience, right? right? And kind of an inspiring guy. He's he's able to to really explain things and and get excited about things in a way that uh, is pretty unique for the show. So uh, stay tuned for that. I can't wait. But Matt, before we get to our conversation with Larry, we should say we're just fresh off of Jaden's run. He did run the entire hundred miles. Spoiler alert. And actually more than that, because I guess there were some detours along the way, but I think his Garmin watch basically told him he had run a hundred miles and he still had another couple miles to go. It sounded like. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually uh, waiting for them to, to get to the century 21 end point in Chilliwack. And, and I think he hit a hundred miles before. So they walked a little bit. And yeah, it was really because one of the bridges was closed, which right. was, it, this operation was much bigger than I ever expected. They had the cops on motorbikes, the ambulance. So to reroute the the running at whatever that was, 10 at night on Friday to avoid the bridge was, was incredible. I mean, I got, I literally rode in the back of the ambulance to the new starting point over the Fraser River with like three, four other guys. <laughs> and then they gave me a ride. They gave me a ride back to the hospital at the end. But but uh, he, here's one thing. He has raised almost 80 grand. Almost 80 grand. Run. He's going to leave it open for a few weeks. Yeah. And, and so, over, so 80 grand, the goal was 150, but Which was an is, insane, which, which is, is an insane, insane goal. goal yeah. Right? But 80 is, is phenomenal. And then also combined with last year's efforts, he is over $200,000 for BC Children's Hospital, for which BC is incredible. Children's Hospital in two years, which is uh, pretty phenomenal. A lot of uh, respect for what Jaden has done this year. And and so much support from the VREP community, such an incredible effort from our, our community 
of VREP listeners. Uh, super excited about that. We had a, a young guy, 17 years old, I believe. This is actually Adam Crockford. Yeah, this is an incredible story. He showed up to run. Yeah. He'd never run a half marathon before. No. Uh, and then, you know, we're talking to him and he's like, okay, I think I'm going to run to the first checkpoint, which is 28K, which is, that 17 was 17 miles, right? Yeah, it was 28, 28 and a half kilometers or something like that. But it was running literally from BC Children's Hospital into Surrey. Right. Which it's mind boggling that that's only 28K. But, uh, but anyway, he's running and he's, he's, the vibe was so positive and everybody was kind of pumped up and there's music and you're, you're running down like the main streets of Vancouver and Burnaby and, and, uh, everybody's excited. Anyway, long story short, Adam Crockford never ran a half marathon. He ran a full marathon that night. Wow. So he ran to like one in the morning or something, but I don't want to take anything away from Adam Crockford, but yeah. that guy has like the most runner's body. He's like, the he's, biggest he's surprise tall. was that he'd never run. A half he's tall, he's got before. legs up to his neck. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's kind of perfectly like that guy could probably go on to be a wow. really serious contender. I wish I, I had the experience of running with this group of people when I was 17, 17. I think it would have changed my life. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And he's, and what a cool guy too. What a, that was awesome meeting him. And then on top of that, Ecam, Ecam, yeah, Ecam, the realtor came out. He was he was really uh, he's raised some money too, uh, and, and uh, donated some himself. And he was running in Surrey. He's a he's a pretty funny guy. Yeah, that was uh, it was good to see. He joined you like late at night. From yeah, I was just monitoring uh, basically on Instagram and and the tracker right. from home. I no suddenly there's a new guy in track pants running beside us, and I was like. Is that Ecam? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it is. Somewhere along in Burnaby, I think we ran by Keith Winterman's with a sign. Yeah. Uh, shout out to Keith Winterman. He raised some money. He and- was there with his his kids. And I think that was like on Kingsway, just past Metro Town, maybe. If we do this, though, if we go through everybody that, that showed no, support, no, we're going to be was, on this. This is going to be a four-hour podcast. It was, but- it was just, a, it was a really, really... Uh, positive experience. That's yeah, for sure. no, that's uh, that's fantastic. And congrats to Jaden and everybody, uh, all of his friends from the U.S. who came out for support, which was huge. And uh, man, over 200 grand, two years. That's phenomenal. No kidding. No uh, kidding. Matt, and we should quickly finally say today's episode is sponsored by Scalina Real Estate. That's our real estate company. We help people buy and sell in the lower mainland. And the featured listing of today. The featured listing of today is at H&H. That is a concrete building from 2008 uh, downtown on Homer. It's H&H, Homer, and Helmkin. And Homer is such a great street. Yeah, no, it's uh, one of my favorite streets in Yaletown, and I think I'm not alone. Right down the street, you got Small Victory Bakery. It's it, it's Shout just to there's not a lot of traffic on Homer, yeah, and it's it's a great spot. So this is a one bed and den, three seventeen, eleven thirty three Homer, really nice den for uh, work at home. Generous outdoor space, parking. H and H is known like we say Chef's Kitchen all the time, Adam. These are this kitchen is truly a Chef's Kitchen. It has a Viking, almost like industrial gas range. This is just a, yeah, a fantastic unit. So it's check like it the out. Bear post renovation. This is a, this is a great this is a great spot, Matt. People can obviously go to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. We have our, our featured, featured listings. listings we have our featured listings at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com, and you can also click Sell with us, where you download the Soul Plan. Yeah, the Soul Plan, of course, is our listings guide. So it's a it's a way to get your property ready for market to get top dollar in the shortest amount of time. And it's really a step by step guide. You just go through steps. 
you uh, sold stands for in our case start on launch date so you pick your launch date you work your way backwards it gives you the 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 2 to 3 week window of what you need to do before you get your property on the market and without further ado Matt we're running a little bit long let's cut to this conversation with Larry Beasley enjoy this podcast is sponsored by Marcon a local family owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly 4 decades Marcon is not only committed to high quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the lower mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam, with 165 homes ranging from junior one-beds to three-beds. Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at marcon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at marcon.ca or follow them at Instagram at marconhomes. Marcon, building for life. Okay, so we're here with Larry Beasley. He is the founding principal of Beasley and Associates. He's also, well, recently retired as the distinguished practice professor at UBC. And of course, many will know him as the former co-director of planning at the city of Vancouver. Welcome back, Larry Beasley, and thanks for joining us. Well, uh, hello, Matt, and hello, Adam. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, we should say past guest fan favorite, and you, you missed Adam, also author. Uh, of oh, yeah. Vancouverism, which we've we've talked uh, we yeah, talked to you in the past about, and we've talked a lot on the on the show about. So, and, and we'll save it for the end. But uh, author of another forthcoming book, which we're excited to talk about. But Larry, uh, for our listeners that that are not familiar with uh, your work, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I was in um, local government in Vancouver for 32 years. I was uh, in the planning department. I worked my way up from a neighborhood planner to being the co-director of planning with Dr. Ann McAfee. She and I did that for many years, and we were both deputies before that. So we were at the planning department during the what I call the Vancouverism years, when Vancouver really was transformed. After that, I went on to found my own uh, uh, consultancy, and my biggest project soon after I left the city was that I founded the planning agency in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates, uh, did that for five years, but also did projects in Dallas and uh, Europe and, and uh, the Nordic countries and Australia, continued to do a lot of work there. I taught for 27 years at the University of British Columbia and in the School of Planning. I taught a course that was just about practice, how to how to be a planner, how to be successful as a planner. And I'm on a number of boards across the country or have, have been. I'm kind of retiring from some of those now, but I've just left the National Capital Commission. I was uh, on the TransLink board. 
I'm still on the Calgary Green Line board, and then I'm on a lot of a number of nonprofit boards as well. And Larry, you spend a lot of time in California, is that right? Yes, I do. I I, I have uh, two home bases, uh, one here in uh, uh, Southern California, and of course the other in Vancouver. So I'm going back and forth a lot. Yeah. And, and did you grow up in Vancouver? Uh, well, uh, you could say yes. I came to Vancouver when I was 19. I came from the U.S. and I, I just immigrated to Vancouver and made my life there. And I would say I grew up there. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, well, Larry, I think the last time we had you on the show was 2019, which of course feels like um, a <laughs> lifetime ago. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so you know, maybe we'll start with. Um, with a fairly broad question, but but since 2019 or, or say the last five years, how have priorities shifted or been reshaped in the planning community, if at all? Oh, they've been reshaped uh, in many, many ways, partly because of COVID, but also partly because of some of the, the key issues that have emerged in the last few years. COVID cause a, a shift in the way that people work and how they relate uh, living to working. We all know about that. I won't go into that. Uh, no one knows where that's going to finally land, but it means that many of our definitions of the past uh, as planners on land use were not not right. But of course, I think the bigger issues and the, the more urgent issues for Vancouver have been the the rise of absolute urgency with housing affordability. We're nowhere near finding solutions to that. And a secondary issue is the state of our our streets, uh, our street culture. We've seen a um, terrible situation of uh, homeless people, mentally ill people, addicted people on the streets, nowhere to go, not being able to really coexist with others. And that's a, another another very very huge issue. There are some other what I would saw, call bigger issues that are shaping cities around the world, such as the the uh, rise of the share economy and uh, and uh, the re reallocation of public space, things like that. But those uh, those three issues are are really um, hitting Vancouver right now in a very impactful way. And it's causing, I've noticed as I've watched, because I watch now the uh, the planning culture in Vancouver very, very closely, but I'm not that involved in it. But I've noticed that there's a, a, a kind of a moving away from some of the quality of life urgencies that we felt when I was a young fellow and then in charge of planning with Anne that worries me. And uh, it worries me that we have to find a way to have affordability and livability and quality of life. We became a very famous city around the world for our quality of life. But we also became a very famous city for, number one, our lack of affordability, and number two, our street scene. I, I recently saw an image that is maybe the newest image of Vancouver that was just focused completely on that street situation. So Lots of issues for the current generation. And Larry, um, I don't know if there's a, there is an answer to this, but it just strikes me as those that we're, you know, Vancouver feels like it's one of the kind of epicenters of, of those challenges. It does seem like it, it's a, at least a Cascadia and, uh, and maybe 
beyond actually you know what you see i've seen images recently from Kelowna and other places outside of british columbia with kind of similar challenges do you have any sense of why now like what's what's changed well first let me um let me try to say this that the issue of affordability in cities is not focused just on Vancouver. I find it in every successful city in the world that I work in. I'm finding it in Australia. I'm finding it in Europe. The Europeans had had recently, in recent decades, got more into home ownership. They're shifting back to rental. One of the big issues that is touching the entire world is the spontaneous migrations that we see now of human beings it used to be that the laws and the militaries and the you know all the restrictions would keep everyone more or less in their part of the world but that's not the case anymore people will go where they need or want to be or where they'll escape where they don't want to be no matter what and no matter what the condition they'll do it at the very cost of their lives that means there are millions of people that are circulating in the world that weren't before. And all those people are searching for housing. All those people are searching for, you know, a place to call home and a place to put down roots. And that's causing a big uh, issue for cities everywhere. Cities that are particularly attractive, and Vancouver is one of those cities in the world, everywhere I go, people will like to talk about how did you do this? How did you do that? Because it is an attractive city to live in. But Cities that are attractive are having more problems than cities that aren't. Small or middle-sized cities like Vancouver are having often more problems than larger cities. Part of that is the in-migration and the demand that's been created. Part of it is also the lack of capacity within cities, many, many cities, to just respond to this tidal wave of demand that's come from around the world as people are, you know, mobile, and also as as the standards of living have risen in many cases and, and given people, you know, more income to think about their housing and put more demands on all aspects of the housing market. So to me, it's a world problem. And it's a problem that's going to have to be dealt with in each area, in each region, because the the economy of development is often localized. And and really, when you think of the number of national and international developers that are in Vancouver, there's not many of them. Really, it's a, it's a localized market. And so mm-hmm. we need to find ways to enhance the development capacity in the city. We need to find ways to support bringing on more housing. We need to begin to, as partnerships between the development community and, and the uh, civic governments to think about how can we open up more potential for housing, et cetera. The other thing we need to do, and it's something I'm really finding fascinating elsewhere in the world, is that we really have to think a lot about our definitions of what is a home? How does a home have to be separated from a workplace? Many of those things that you know we took for granted from the mid last century uh, and we were striving for and hoping that we could house every single person in a single family home and, you know, with a big backyard and a place to work that's far away. Is That's all changing. And we need to open up living possibilities uh, in ways that we're just not thinking about right now. 
we tend to be gatekeepers for the old way rather than inventors of some new ways of living. I'll give you an example. I was fascinated by uh, Finland and uh, and Sweden and Norway are getting into uh, shared living for families. Two and sometimes three families will live in one abode and they'll share some facilities and then they'll have some private facilities and and they make their lives in a very different way. And that's not even allowed in our country, in our city. It's even very hard for multi-generations to live together, which is a common thing in many parts of the world. But those are just some examples of the rethink that we need to do if we're really going to address these issues. And we can't continue to do things like blame the development community or worse than that, blame the immigrants who are coming in or worse than that, blame the local government. We have to start working as a partners because this is a world problem. Mm -hmm. How much of that is, I mean, one thing that strikes me is, is that, uh, you know, planning departments in in my mind, and I, I might be wrong, are are not super nimble. Any sort of bureaucracy is not super nimble. But, you know, one thing that just jumps out at me is near Douglas Park a week or two ago, and I don't know if you saw this, where there was an attempt to have eight spots in a daycare open up and the the community organized against it. And I think it was the Board of Variants or whatever. They They had it shut down. Like, how do we... You know, working together, there's a lot of different cross currents and different interests involved. I know you've had great success kind of bringing people together in the past, but do you see a, a kind of way forward there? Because, you know, different generations have different ideas of how to live, parking, all these things that seem like we're just at loggerheads all the time. Well, yeah, I do. I do have some thoughts about that. We don't actually do a lot of work together anymore. You just think about it. How many civic convened planning committees of citizens are there now? How many community organizations rooted in the community are working with government at various levels to solve problems? Or maybe I could pose the question differently. How many community organizations have organized to stop things? Uh, because they were they were just put forward without, you know, really engaging with people. I learned something very early as a young fellow, and that was people are very, very smart. They're smart, but they also have their own interest at, at heart. Those are not bad things. And so if you work with people, if you talk with people, if you form organizations and situations where you can actually have a liberal discussion, then you will start finding answers that don't cause people to have to trade off their safety or, you know, whatever, but allow them to be more inclusive of others and and more open to new ideas. We found it in spades, you know, uh, when I was a young fellow in community planning, there were thousands of citizens who were constantly working to bring people back to their communities, to, you know, think about new forms of housing, to do a lot of things that brought dead neighborhoods back to life. But it was because we work together. We do a lot now of positioning against one another. And that, your example is a very good example. Has community planning been going on in that neighborhood to help people understand the need for more 
access to childcare or the lack of childcare? Has community planning been going on in other communities to talk about needing to put different kinds of housing in and different ways? Very little. Mm-hmm. And I, I like to use the uh, Broadway plan as a as an example of what I'm going to talk about. The Broadway plan, most of I think the listeners will know about the Broadway plan, a, a sweeping uh, plan to add housing capacity into our city. The Broadway plan was a really good idea. It had all the right principles, intensification, diversification, transit-oriented development, non-auto-oriented, all the all the right principles. But it had an, a groundswell of citizens who really said, no, we weren't, no one really talked to us. Well, maybe there was one meeting or that, but no one really talked to us. And no one talked about how to do it. And we're against this and we're against that. Well, I believe that the Broadway plan should should be even seen right now as a a kind of map toward the future, a set of principles. And then each neighborhood, we should go in there and start working with people and say, okay, where do those where do those buildings need to go, those new buildings? And which buildings need to be protected? And you know, how do we add community facilities in? Because the, the plan doesn't even talk about that. How do we make this come together? The fact is that cities are complex. And if you try to deal with the complexity of those decisions about cities with a very superficial engagement, everyone's going to fall back on the no scenario, uh, is what I, uh, I feel. But I found that even in some of the toughest things, that a community had to come to grips with. When we actually sat down and talked, people are so smart that we found solutions. And I think that's what has to happen. There needs to be a new dedication to finding some solutions for affordability and all the other issues we face with our citizens, not presenting them to our citizens. And, you know, with some general principles laid out, and that's what uh, Anne and I tried to do a lot. Her her um, uh, city plan was really a set of principles about how the city should grow. But then you have to go, you have to do the hard work in a community or it's just going to go nowhere. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to go back, Larry, you mentioned, you know, one of the things you saw that was concerning is, and as I understood it, was planners are moving away from focusing on quality of life. Does that kind of dovetail into what you're talking about here can you can you kind of unpack that a little bit yeah i want to be clear i'm not sure planners are moving away from it but i think sometimes civic organizations are moving away from it sometimes civic organizations see the planners as just trying to gild the lily you know of trying to well you know view corridors my goodness why do we need view corridors and and so the planners are trying to say, when you have view corridors, you can accommodate a lot more people because you don't block out everyone's views. But there's no discussion that really gets to that level. So what has happened, I think, in many civic government situations, I see it across Canada, is that frustrated politicians are going back for and say, now, what are the barriers here at City Hall for development? Because they see the problem as a barrier of government to development. 
And so then say, well, let's get rid of all this law, this this regulation, this uh, guideline, this, that, this, that, this. Let's speed up the system so that it's, uh, you know, spontaneous and all those things. Those are not bad things. It's always good to be reviewing. It's always good to be trying to do better. But I don't think that's where the problem is. The problem is not the barrier of civic policy. The problem is there's not enough capacity in the development community and the government to accommodate the tens of thousands that we have to accommodate every year. What is it? 50,000 more people will come to Vancouver this coming year. 50,000, you add that to the demand of housing that's already there. It's hard to use the old systems and the old ways to provide for that. And many people now are starting to illegally do things their own way. People are illegally living together. People are illegally living in places that where housing is supposedly not allowed. And of course, we see people living on the street, which no one wants. So yes, government has to make sure it's agile, but it is government's job on behalf of our citizens, to also make sure we create a quality place. Because I can tell you, I've I've seen cities, I've worked in cities where quality was not considered. And the places are awful. And frankly, they're not much cheaper. (laughs) Right. I don't think we've ever heard that it's, that the ability of the development community to actually scale is an issue in Vancouver. Like actually to... The, to have the capacity to provide the housing. That's that's something I don't think we've ever heard. Or or the government. Yeah. Let me just follow up on that. I I think we have, and I, I now work with developers all over the world, so I can tell you this with some confidence. We have among the most efficient, effective development community that I see and that I work with. We are very effective. We are innovative. We are, you know, pushing hard. But there's not enough developers. Imagine having to provide quality accommodation for 50,000 more people every year. No, you know, we don't go back to the old supply and demand truth. If demand is strong and you can't supply it, prices are going to go up and you can say, okay, why are all the reasons we can't supply it? And we never like to say one of the reasons is that we're not facilitating the growth and diversification of our development community the way we should be. We're not opening up lands the way we should be. We're not providing the kind of supports for that development community the way we should do. And so They go as fast as they can, but how can they deliver what they need to deliver? Larry, I'm I'm struck by one of the things you said is, you know, you've seen, you've seen places where they've kind of opened up and gotten rid of maybe some of the regulations or restrictions in place around building, such as say view, view cones, for example, and even opening up the, uh, the floodgates for people to do what they want to do you're not left with, in many cases, better affordability. So it, is this idea that we can build our way out of this, is that, is that a realistic pursuit? Well, it's one pursuit. I mean, that's one of the problems. Another of the problems is our definition of the products is very, very narrow, and it's become narrower all the time. 
You know, I'm working in an area in Vancouver where it's all about creative workers. And, you know, creative workers work 24 hours a day. And sometimes they work in their in a workplace. Sometimes they work in a production place. Sometimes they work at home. Sometimes they work in Starbucks. And yet the regulatory framework isn't agile to that kind of mixed use and complexity the way that it needs to be. There needs to be thousands of housing units added. But also, and that's with the workspaces and the studio spaces and the ample, you know, public commercial spaces that people can collect and meet each other. But our definitions are very tight. You know, we're still taking this view in Vancouver, greater Vancouver, and I would say this for our region as well, that we have, we feel that we are the protectors of all the industrial land. No one's gone recently to evaluate which industrial land is is effectively in use, which is being used to its optimum, which might be excess and could be transferred to something else, or even what kind of industries do we now have where other uses are compatible with those and so we can diversify. You know, the the city of tomorrow is not a city about separating all the uses. It's a city about overlaying uses and then managing the negative interface while you take advantage of the positive interfaces. And that's a very different kind of concept than you see in, in most regulatory systems. You know, if you if you want a good example of what I'm talking about, I mean, just look at many of the cities down in America which have, quote-unquote, deregulated a very different culture, so I'm not trying to, you know, to say we're the same, mm-hmm. but they quote unquote deregulated. Situation hasn't really gotten that much better. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah. You know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer. And they're looking for both donations and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join 
type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join typing in VRP 2020. Can we think about the city of tomorrow or talk about the city of tomorrow here, what you're talking about there? Because I, I think I understand what you're envisioning or what the, the idea is, but I guess it's the antithesis of kind of a, a suburban space with single family homes and a business district and a zone for industrial space where there's kind of that very distinct space. Do I, do I have that right? Yeah. And I'm not saying that all of a sudden everything's going to be on top of everything else like traditional Chinese cities. And so you had to live with the noise and pollution and all that. No, I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying that there's a lot more mixes of uses that we need to talk about. There's a lot more diversity in the intensifications that we need to talk about. And there's a lot more activity mixes within those uses that we need to talk about. And that leads to a different kind of city. It leads to a city where just the issue of proximity there, where what you need to do every day and where you settle every night are close enough together that you don't need cars and you don't need all that. Look what's happened to downtown Vancouver is we added 120,000 people. The car ownership has gone down and uh, walking has gone up and, you know, all of those, all of those issues. I do want you to understand that I, I believe that every city needs some areas that are single family. It needs some areas that are low scale, a lot of areas that are lower scale. In fact, uh, the Nordic countries have shown us that the, the low and mid-scale multiple housing is amazingly livable and amazingly accommodating for unit count. And then we need some of those higher density areas like downtown Vancouver. We don't need a lot of those. Vancouver has one of the best regional plans that was ever put together in modern times in the world. It's right up there with Copenhagen's regional plan and a few others that just stand out. Our livable region plan is was, and back in the 70s, I can't even imagine how they did it, except I will say it was the first time that there was a massive public engagement to talk about how a city should be structured. But anyway, that plan with its town centers and its diversity of you know building up to those town centers, which is just starting to be realized today, mm-hmm is how we change the city from that city you described, which is, you know, the white picket fence vision, to the city uh, of tomorrow, which will be intense, diverse, and have many, many more options than we see today. To me, the cities I get very excited about are the cities that just seem to be teeming with options. And give everyone a sense of uh, you know how they're gonna how they're gonna live and where they're gonna decide to put their money. Are they gonna put it into housing or put it into investments or put it into their children or what? Are, what are they gonna do? But they have options for that. Is there a city that's doing this incredibly well that you look to or that planners often mention? There are two cultures that seem to be making great strides in their cities, and one of those is surprisingly, is Australia. Australian cities are 
much more diverse than our cities and much more intense than our cities. They have their single family areas and all that, but there's a lot more diversity and there's a lot more flexibility in the definition of uses. The second culture is up in the Nordic countries where they have deliberately started thinking about different ways of living than just the, you know, and frankly, they never even had the American dream. They're just thinking about many more diverse uh, ways of living. The uh, Hammerby Schostad neighborhood in in, uh, Stockholm is just a brilliant example. It's been there 30 years of pretty quite intensive living with amazing lush amenities, housing people comfortably. And it's being replicated all over the Nordic countries. Uh, you'll see amazing neighborhoods in Oslo and Helsinki and and not just one. You'll see, you know, one builds up and then another one pops up, another one pops up. So those two cultures provide us a, a, a lot of inspiration, at least for me, as I, as I got out and about in the world. One of the problems that I think we all have in Canada, particularly, I would say this is true of planners, is that we don't get out and see what's happening in the world. And so we think our problems are the biggest problems in the world. And we think our solutions are the best solutions in the world. I just want to go back to the three kind of things that have changed or are the big topics for Vancouver. Like, so when we talk about the first one that we didn't really delve into, but we've talked about enough on the show, the, the kind of impacts of COVID and kind of the uncertainty around office culture and how that's really the long-term impacts of of how people are going to live, affordability, and then the state of the street culture. Since you've came as a as a young person to Vancouver, does this moment because there is a level of uncertainty in this moment, I think that everybody feels whether or not you're actually speaking of it or not. Does this moment remind you of any other, or is this something new entirely that we're navigating in your mind? Well, the, to me, the scale of this is uh, new to the history of Vancouver and the difficulty of these problems. But it reminds me an awfully lot of the mid-70s when Vancouver was almost like trying to realize a new vision for itself or realize it needed a new vision and there had to be a reform. There had to be a, a party that came to power with a strong idea of what that new place might look like. Uh, they had to work, you know, the streets. They had to get out there and and build people's understanding, citizens' understanding in our democracy. It kind of reminds me of that. This one is not quite so obvious because in that case it was the freeway that really galvanized everyone and this one is not quite so obvious but but the strength of the potential of the issues of today to negate a lot of what Vancouver has achieved over the last 30 years is something that I think is going to take uh, a reform at the political level and really uh some very hard, creative thinking by the planning community, the development community, and the citizen advocacy community. Because those are the three communities that really make your city. And and we're kind of stuck in our old ways a little bit. 
Larry, in the post-COVID world, has Vancouver fared better than other cities in the West Coast, on the West Coast? Uh, Vancouver, as I see it, and I, I also compare it with, with cities overseas and other places and in America, has done a, a lot better. And the reason is that many cities saw a complete decimation of their downtowns. Many cities have not, still have not recovered. I've, I've been traveling around California a bit, and there's many cities where the vacancy rate is, you know, 40%, 50% in, in these core cities because no one lived there. And everyone went off to their, to their two places, to their suburban living and also to their suburban offices sometimes, and they never came back. There's no, there's no reason to come back. Vancouver, because we were diverse, and not only downtown, but in our town centers, we were have become more and more diverse. We just rebounded a little better, and we weren't quite so much in a crisis. You know, I remember um, people having to shift home and to work, and that was just a few maybe a mile or so from where they were working anyway. So they could right. still get together with their friends. They could still go to the shops they they like going to. And so there wasn't a lot of commercial decline that came with the situation in Vancouver. A lot of other cities saw a major decline. One thing that, you know, strikes me, and I think it's, it's both things are, seem to be true, but when you said, you know, that we're at a, we're at a crossroads where essentially we could, potentially negate a lot of the the positive that's happened over the last say 30 40 years in Vancouver and like and at the same time we've we've fared substantially better than a lot of other cities i feel like both those things feel true are maybe hard to square but is it your impression that vancouver's the perception of vancouver has changed in in the global conversation like it doesn't for whatever reason right now it doesn't feel quite as like, I feel like in 2019, when maybe this is the simplest way to put it, Larry, when we had you on when your book came out, it was like, it felt a lot better than it feels right now. And maybe that's just a commentary on the world right now, but it feels like Vancouver's brand is kind of diminished a little bit. There's two almost contradictory things going on in the world. And because I'm out and about so much and because people talk to me about Vancouver, I get a kind of a good cross-section of what people are thinking about the city. And uh, I will say that in the days leading up to when I published my book and, you know, the early early 2000s, any discussion about Vancouver when I was in Australia, the Nordic countries, Europe, even the Middle East, was quite admiring. They admired that here's a modern city that uh, didn't build like other modern cities that did integrate some of the great contemporary thinking of the time. The new urbanists in America had to swallow hard, but even admired that they liked Vancouver, even with its towers. You know, many new urbanists don't like towers, but there was this kind of positive thing. And I was often invited to cities just to tell the Vancouver story and then work with them to see you know, where they were off rails with that Vancouver story. That change has changed now to, there is still the admiration, there is still the sense that Vancouver is an an important emerging world city. 
there's still a sense that it is a preferred destination uh, for many people. A lot of that has to do with Canadian culture, of course, because we're a very amenable culture and we're democratic. We're, you know, we live in relative harmony and, and we live in a beautiful place. But there is still that. And, and the city that people have in viscerally in their consciousness of Vancouver is still there. But there are now two stories that that always just drum through that image. And the first of those stories is the yes, but it's the most expensive city in the world. And by the way, it's not the most expensive. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's been to London recently or Paris recently or, you know, uh, many cities recently. Yeah. It's not. It, it is an expensive city and relative to its income levels, yes. You hear that, and then you hear the other message. It's dangerous there now. It used to be so safe, but it's dangerous. And then there will be images of, you know, the um, street scene. Those two things have, have and, and part of it in the world is no one likes just a good story. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone wants to know their warts on, you know, every story. And part of it's that, but part of it is those issues are have emerged as as really important. What I want to do, what I want Vancouver and this generation to do is to say, without giving up that first image, without giving away all the policy framework that got us that image, I want to see the modern people say, this issue of affordability just has to be dealt with differently. We have to find a new way the public and private sector work together. We have to have a secure middle-income housing sector, just as when I was a kid, we we were trying to get a secure low-income housing sector. We have to do that in the way that the northern the, the, the Nordic countries do that. And we have to find those answers. And we have to say to ourselves, let's just fundamentally rethink what is a home? What is a workplace? When can home and workplace actually be together? When can you make one investment instead of two, et cetera? Those kind of, that kind of thinking. And of course, we just fundamentally have to deal with the situation on the street. We are among the wealthiest societies in the world. And yet we have so many that's dropped out of the bottom. It's just not good. It's not much different. In fact, it's a lot better than what I see down here in America. In Los Angeles, the I think it's now 150,000 homeless people. Even in Seattle, it's something like 50,000 homeless people. We're talking the last count about 200 or, or, or 2,000 homeless people. But, you know, those numbers don't give me any any good feeling because 2,000 is too many. And if we could attack those two issues, if we can make even some progress on those issues, that will polish that image that we had a decade ago. Larry, I'm hearing, well, I'm hearing a couple things with what you're saying, but one is it it sounds like a lot of affordability comes at, at changing our ways of just thinking about housing is kind of at the core of it. Yeah. See, one of the big worries I have, and I hear it all the time in Vancouver, is I hear some people say, well, if those immigrants didn't come in, our housing prices wouldn't be high. I don't like that. I think it's racist. I think it's a it's not logical for a city that wants to be a world city. But more importantly, 
I don't like it because if we don't open ourselves to immigration, we will not have the economy to provide the jobs for all the people. And we won't have the new economy to provide the new jobs for people. So I don't like when it comes down to just, you know, one way to deal with demand is just cut demand. To me, a better way to deal with that onslaught of demand is to find new ways of living, new housing forms, new places to build housing, new situations where where we could multi-use land for, for housing and other purposes. You know, I look across the landscape of Vancouver and I see hundreds of acres that are used very low intensity for one use. I can see millions of opportunities let me just use a little one, just as it's one that you know people who know me will know that this one is one that I've been on a bandwagon against uh, for a long time, and that's False Creek Flats. There we have an amazing area, False Creek Flats. It has to accommodate our rail yards, absolutely, and and very importantly. But if you do any assessment of that of that landscape, as I have done in detail, there are opportunities for probably 25, 30, maybe even fifty thousand people to live there in quality living. And it doesn't even have to be very high scale in most of it. But there it sits, it's within three minutes of the epicenter of our city. And yet, we haven't been able to open our consciousness to that. Even, you know, one little bit of that raises the ire of a lot of people. So it's where there has to be a big discussion. And it is about new forms of living, new places to live, new forms of living in regard to other urban activities. One other thing I just want to ask you about that is because we we did talk about dealing with people with with the homeless or population and and I know you're looking at other countries that have, you know, in many ways similar growing pains or similar issues with affordability. We've had lots of conversations on the program about uh, certain initiatives at the municipal or the provincial level for where housing should be going throughout the city. And there's been arguments about concentrating housing close to, say, the downtown east side, for example, or there's been more recent uh, efforts to spread out housing kind of throughout the city. Do you have any thoughts on maybe how we're solving the homeless crisis uh, in Vancouver? Well, the one thing I would say, and it's a, to me, it's the principle, and that is that uh, we have 21 municipalities in our region. We have vast lands in every one of those municipalities. The accommodation for homeless people, and I'm talking specifically about homeless people, and I'll say low-income folks as well, needs to be provided in every single one of those places. We can't say to ourselves, there's one place in town where all the poor people have to go and, you know, and we'll never see them. And we can't say that. It's not responsible. It's also not respectful of people. And it's not respectful of the the diversity of people who have economic challenges and, and, and other kinds of challenges to just say they should be in one place. It needs to happen all over the region. And there needs to be a regional strategy that has not really happened in our region. And I remember back uh, some politicians, even when I was still in government, trying to advocate to get that to happen. And and the answer was, you know, it's not popular in my part of the city, so forget it. And, you know, it's your problem. That's something that I think for sure. Second thing is, however, I also think 
there has to be an understanding that there are people sitting in the downtown east side right now with no place to live. And we have to try to accommodate those people. And to me, back years and years ago, Judy Rogers helped to put in place something called the Vancouver Agreement. And that was a federal, provincial, and civic initiative with coordination and policy and funding to start to address some of those issues. And they were making great progress. And then that agreement spun out and the other governments went off and you know did other things. We need to convene a special effort at the national level, at our provincial level, and at the civic level to start to address this. And we have to do it in other cities. You know, Vancouver has homeless, but so does Toronto. So does Calgary. So does every city that I've been in in Canada. And we have to just say, as a society, we have to invest more in solving this issue. And it will give us so many benefits in terms of other money saved, in terms of other taxes paid as people come back into society. So there's not one pat answer to this issue of uh, homelessness or to the bigger issue of affordability. We have to have a hundred new answers. Larry, maybe as a final question, lots of big ideas, challenging moment. You're writing a new book. Can you give us any anything on it? What what's what's the topic? What what are some of the? Are you working through the ideas? Where are you at? The new book is uh, is is a very specific one. We're um, working with a group of my colleagues, and we're writing a book about our work in in Abu Dhabi in planning the desert. And uh, there's about twenty of us, and I'm the editor, and we are putting together a, this amazing story of five years where we went into a place where nothing was happening and we left that place with a a very a very progressive framework for urban development and uh, and environmental protection so that's what the book is about but the book has many messages that are relevant because there was a place that started with nothing and the place was getting worse and worse as a result of the nothing and then coming in and and trying to take all that amazing energy and shape it to meet some community objectives, some social objectives, transform the way that their cities and and their landscape uh, is developing. And that's that's kind of the level of the challenge that we face in our cities as well in Canada. And we hope our message will be useful maybe to inspire more creative thinking, thinking outside the context of normal normal ideas, not accepting that yes, but yes, but yes, but that puts a puts a blinkers on on so much. Maybe the book will inspire people to realize that in some other place they really had nothing, right, and, and totally transformed. Yeah, so I'm hoping the book will be out in a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, well, Larry, we we always end the show with a segment called the Five Wire. That's five quick, lighthearted questions to end the show. Do you have time to stick around for that? I do. The Five Wire is brought to you by Scalina Real Estate. Hey, that sounds familiar. Scalina Real Estate is a full-service real estate company serving Vancouver, offering comprehensive, tried and tested buyer and seller systems. With over a decade in the top 10% of realtors in the lower mainland and a perfect five-star Google review, Scalina Real Estate can help with all your real estate needs. We also have an extensive network of the 
best industry professionals and trades right across the country. There's no reason to not get in touch. Head over to scalinarealestate.com to find out more. Okay, first question. One book you've read recently that you would recommend? Well, I usually read uh, you know, stories by people like Joe Nesbo and Henning McCall and, you know, kind of detective novels. But one I recently read, which was really an eye-opener, was something called Infinity Born by Douglas Richards. And it it's all it's a story. It's a it's a bit of a detective story itself, but it's a story about the world struggle towards artificial intelligence and artificial superintelligence and all the ethical issues that are now coming to the fore. Really fascinating to take you out of the day-to-day turmoil that we live in and say, there's a bigger world coming to us. And what's it like? Yeah. Is it dystopian or or, or is there some no, feel good? No, no, it's, no, no, no. It's what I like about it is it takes place in the current, you know, in time, current times, but it, it just talks about scientific work that I know is going on and, and they confirm is going on that I just didn't realize. And the implications of that work is really an eye opener for any intelligent person who wants to be, have a worldview. Right. Right. Okay. Infinity born. That's a good one. Yeah. In the last few years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? Uh, two things I would say quickly. Number one, uh, I'm embarrassed to tell you, but COVID did something very wonderful for me. It took me off the travel treadmill where I was every single oh, week was right. on somewhere around the world and made me realize that there's a better balance to be found between home and work. And, and that's been amazing. But the other thing at a professional level is that I've been in a huge learning curve about uh, our indigenous responsibilities and uh, and and what we need to do to help our indigenous communities find their place on their own terms in in you know our modern country. So, and I've done a lot of learning and courses and uh, worked with a lot of different nations and and uh, it's been thrilling. It's a it's gives you your youth back. Oh no, kidding! Oh, fascinating. Even more lighthearted than the than that. Uh, what are you? What have you been binge watching lately, or a movie recommendation? Uh, the two uh, series that I've just finished watching. One is called The Americans, and the other is called Blacklist. And they've been amazing, uh, fun, the unexpected, cause you to look at the world a different way, and uh, and always catch your attention. Fantastic. Favorite band or music? Well, for me, it's a it's a, a singer that I discovered when I was marooned in um, Copenhagen one day, and it's Ed Sheeran. So I, ah. I discovered Ed Sheeran's work, and I and I just love it. I love the fact that you know he does all that all that music himself, and he's singing, and he's playing the drums, and he's doing it all himself. It's just and the music is beautiful. It's one. It's great. Okay, Larry, last question of the day. Something you have purchased for under $1,500 that has changed your life in the positive. Well, you know, I'm sure everyone says their phone, but I'm not going to say that. Actually, for me, it was a small painting by an English mid-century painter called uh, William Scott. And it's just opened my consciousness to mid-century art. And I've, I've been starting to collect. I now have a collection of mid-century paintings as a result of uh, of the amazing 
beauty that I found in in William Scott's work. Oh well, and is there a, can you is there a specific painting? It sounds like it was one that uh, that kind of drew well, you I in. Just bought, I I just bought a smaller painting, but um, you can go on the web and find out all about uh, William Scott. He was uh, he was I think he died in the seventies. He was a mid century painter of real real merit. But what it did is it opened up to me the fact that there were hundreds of brilliant painters in the 1950s, 60s that were doing things. And I now have a whole collection of them. Yeah, (laughs) fantastic. Well, Larry, I don't think you're very active on Twitter, but if people want to learn more about uh, what you're doing, what you're thinking, where's the best place to to follow along? Well, to me, the best place for uh, my work is to go on uh, our... um, our website. It's called uh, LarryBeasleyAssociates.com. And uh, it, I try to, we try to keep it up to date with some of the things that are going on. And we try to highlight some of the issues we're, we're working on or interested in. And I also look for neighborhoods that I think are sweet and, and try to portrayal of those neighborhoods up on the online. So that's a good place to go. Well, fantastic. I, I think we t- took more, a little bit more of your time than we were expecting. So uh, thanks for coming back, Larry. It's always good to to reconnect. And that was a, an amazing conversation. And thanks so much for your time. Okay. And thank you. And and by the way, everyone, buy my book, Vancouverism. It's still current. <laughs> it, it, absolutely. <laughs> Highly recommended on the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. That's for sure. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Take care. Bye now. Bye-bye. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with the legend, Larry Beasley. Yeah, I would say legend. Hey, I mean, I think honestly... In and Vancouver, I mean that not the way people say like legend. Now, a legend. Yeah, you're a legend. Because he has like three beers? Yeah, no, 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 no. Larry Beasley's <laughs> actually a legend. Yeah, he's legitimately... He's a trailblazer in the, urban, in the planning community. And I think any planner will tell you that. In a lot of ways, he's the pride of, of Vancouver, I think, in a lot of ways. And I, you can't go down. I'm thinking about it. I've got some friends visiting from out of town, a handful of uh, people coming in middle of October. And I'm thinking, trying to figure out where I'm going to take them. And, and like, first thing that comes to mind is like Yale Town. Even if you're just going to like a restaurant or something. Yeah, or just uh, walking past the Beasley. Because if you're showing off, uh, yeah, if you're showing off the city, right? Like if you walk along the seawall, end up for at a restaurant somewhere, and then uh, pop pop out somewhere for a, a drink or whatever. It's like, man, you get a really good impression of the city. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, so it's great that Larry finds the time to come on the show. And uh, yeah, I love that conversation. That was great. What else do we have before we cut for the day, Adam? We have VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. This is our website always improving new website. It does, of course, have our featured listings on it now. It also has all the summaries of the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast and the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast, where you can search, figure out exactly what you're looking for, go back and listen to a lot of the evergreen content that we've produced over the years. Uh, It's just a great site. You should head there. You can sign up for things like the Livewire. This is our weekly mailer uh, that goes out with stats, different types of stats, deal of the month, there's no reason why you shouldn't be on the live wire. And of course, we have private client services. Yeah, Matt, because if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor-level information for free. It's available at your fingertips over at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Just click buy with us and you will be routed to the research tool. 
what a good time to be monitoring what's happening in the market. You're going to get sold prices. You're going to get live updates. You're going to get days on market. It is unreal. And the only other thing I will say, if you're listening on on uh, Apple Podcasts, please do give us a review. Uh, we're obviously, we appreciate you listening. And if you find the podcast useful, please share with a friend. Or, or Spotify. Because well, actually, Spotify, I, this is what I really wanted to mention is yeah. we had a nice comment from someone in Kelowna who said... Uh, I'm paraphrasing, but thank you so much. You for guys the are John. the best. Thank you so much <laughs> for the John Friesen episode because uh, more essentially you're saying, you know, please keep coming with the Kelowna intelligence. And uh, I actually, honestly, uh, I love that feature on Spotify where yeah. it almost feels like you get these like direct messages on uh, what people thought about. That's right. Uh, about the show kind of in real time, right? Which is kind of cool for us. So um, we've had some positive ones. We've had a few negative ones. So well, how, mostly how, positive. Mostly yeah, positive. I don't even know about the negative. I can't uh, even think of those. And we've got about, I would say, twelve or so shows left of this year. If I can, I can't even believe how uh, how quickly time is going. But some of our guests, I don't want to spoil uh, too many. But Bo Jarvis is coming back. That's like we got he's some like bangers. A, he's we got a some fan bangers. favorite. Yeah. Like legit good friend of the show. I've actually had people uh, tell me that Bo Jarvis is their all-time favorite episode. So he's coming back. If you yeah. enjoyed that episode, if you haven't heard it, go back and listen to it because it's a great one, but he's coming back. We've also got some other phenomenal guests. We've got Jason Turcott coming next week. Love talking to Jason. We, he, I think we're going to bang out a couple ourselves. Yeah, this is his third time on the show. Yeah, not to steal the thunder from Jason, but well, I think we'll bang out a couple ourselves. Well, there's two episodes coming up. One is the Vancouver Thesis episode, like talking about our evolution over the course of the show, talking about how we thought of the market and understand the market, specifically in the kind of the global local context, which I think is a really fascinating conversation. And then on top of that, Tips for finding a deal that has evolved in this specific market. So yeah. if you're one of these people that you're monitoring the market and you're going, okay, I'm seeing stuff sell. I'm seeing some stuff sit. How do I carve out the best deal possible? There's a show coming that's just us going to be walking through our best practices. Absolutely. And if you want to talk about that, well, not that specifically because we'll save it for the show. Sure. Uh, but actually, if you do want to talk about it, give me a call at any point, 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. And of course, we got that Kokomo line, info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Have a great week and uh, we'll see you back next week for some more great content. Take care. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today.